You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it is uh, good to see you today. You need to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, it would be helpful for you to have your Bible open there. And if you want to also go ahead and put um, some sort of a mark in Ephesians chapter 5 and in Genesis chapter 3. Um, all those places you're going to need to get to fairly quickly. And so if you'll go ahead and do that, that would probably serve you. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 3 and been waiting for this one for a while uh, where Peter uh, has a verse where he is directing it specifically at men. And uh, guys, I just want to tell you up front that I cannot put into words how important the content of what he says is Um, for the hope of this place, for what we want to see God do here. um, Words could not convey how, how important even the next few minutes are as we try to get ourselves underneath Peter's, Peter's teaching here. And so um, with that, I, I want to preface this to the guys real quick and then a quick one to the, to the ladies. Um, first to the guys, um, I, I want to make sure that you hear me in the right light um, as I talk today. That um, what, what I'm saying here today is not from a position of perfection in any of these areas. Um, I am a fellow traveler on the road with you here. Um, even last night, Laura was gracious in pointing out some just real failures that I have in some of these areas that well, you're, you're laughing. I'm not laughing right now. I promise you. Um, and it was, it was painful for me last night, really painful. And, uh, and so I want you to know that I think for our posture, if you're a man in the room right now, your posture needs to be God. I know that I am not I'm not at a place of perfection in this, in this arena as well. And so I need to be humble before you. I'm asking your spirit to convict me. And where repentance is needed, that you would grant that to me today. And I could not be more serious. And if your posture is not that, it's probably going to go very badly for you today. Um, and, and to the, the ladies in the room, um, I want to preface it with, with this. I want you to know, just this is me as your pastor speaking to you and, and, and the context of your family, that um, we want to love your man where he is this morning. And, and really where he is when he comes into our church, if he submits himself here and jumps in here, that, that we, we want you to know that we want to love him where he is, but that we will love him enough not to let him stay there. And so I want you to hear that from us. That, and I think you probably hear that often in the flavor of how we preach and the things that happen here. That, that we, want, we want our men to be godly. We don't want them to be boys. We want them to be godly men. And so I want you to know that we're in your corner on that. And here's, here's what you need to make sure um, on your end of this this morning. You need to make sure that you're not trying to play the Holy Spirit for your husband. And so it would, it, it's going to sabotage what you want to see happen in your man. If on the way home, you have a list of 10 things that you learned today and that you hope he learned today. And so, uh, so don't, don't play the spirit. The spirit is big enough to do all that needs to be done in your husband without your help, right? And so, uh, so for you to be able to sit back and for you to listen this morning and for you to pray for your husband, that God would begin to grab his heart in, in this area. Okay, so with that said, 1 Peter 3, um, starting in verse 7 is where we are. Um, last week, it was six verses to um, the ladies. This week, one to the men. And, and just to, to preface this on the side of just this text, Um, just because the ladies had six verses, does that mean the ladies are more messed up or just need more verses to convey all the stuff that needs to be happening in them? 
um, the length of a text is not dependent upon how messed up you are, but how complicated it is to address what he's trying to address and the point he's trying to convey. So how many words does it take to communicate his point? That's why they got six verses, and that's why the men are getting one verse today, because it is a succinctly packed in um, powerful verse that has a lot in here. There is more than we could cover in several sermons here. And so, um, so Peter's got a lot, lot, a lot for the men. So here we go. Verse seven says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So this text is about to walk us into what the Bible would consider manhood. It's about to walk us into the divine calling that God has placed on husbands in the context of their marriage and in the context of their family. That's where it's walking us into today. Now with that, if you just think about this text from a 30,000 foot level, here, here's what's happening. Peter is giving two pieces of instruction in this text. And he's given two like statements that, that help drive motivation in the text. And so, so here's how we'll lay this out. I want to deal with the two instructional pieces first. And then we'll wrap it up at the very end and talk about the, the two motivational things that he says to the men in the room. So we'll start with instruction. So look, look again, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is the first piece of instruction here. If you want to maybe summarize that, here's how you could say it. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. This is what Peter's communicating, that you need to live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, this covers a whole kind of vast area underneath it. But if you boil it down to what Peter is essentially saying, he is saying, husbands, you need to live in your home with your wife according to knowledge. Okay, that, that's, the, that's the point he's saying. You need to live according to knowledge. Okay, now with that, I, I want to cover three implications of what I think it would look like to live according to knowledge if you're a man and you're a husband in this room. So according to knowledge, here would be one implication of that. And I'm going to put these um, in the context of Things husbands need to be working toward, need to be um, spending time and energy and effort developing. Okay, so, so husbands, in light of this, this command to, and this instruction to live according to knowledge, I think it would mean this for you. That husbands, you need to work to get a biblical view of marriage deeply rooted in your heart. You have to work for that. Like, one of my concerns for a lot of us in the room is that we have an inadequate view of marriage and a theology of marriage to kind of think about our marriage in. And, and we have um, an inadequate framework, like a biblical framework of marriage to, to kind of think about marriage within, that, that it's inadequate in that way. And, and so, but here's the thing, for it to grow in adequacy, it takes time and it takes work and it takes energy and it takes effort. Like one of the problems that we have in this room, it's not just out there, it's in here, is that we have become enculturated in how we think about marriage. And so that the way the culture would think about marriage, view marriage, um, see marriage, counsel marriage, has become normal for us. It's more normal for us than the way God views marriage, than the way God counsels marriage, and the way God sees marriage. And, and so as men in the room, in, in the context of your in your family, that there's a call on your life to live according to knowledge, to make sure that that cultural haze is wiped clean for you. That, that when you think about marriage, it's reflective of God's heart towards marriage. That when you think marriage, you're seeing the weightiness of that in the Bible, that you're seeing the wonder of that in the mind of God, that you're seeing that. That it has not reduced itself to kind of our cultural view of it. And maybe just to throw out... Um, 
kind of how you see this play out is just think about in the last year of your life for the men in the room. Think about articles that you have read. Think about blogs that you have read. Think about magazines that you have read, maybe books that you've read over the last 12 months that deal primarily in the avenue of maybe your hobby. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your, one of these areas of interest. But, but just think about how there is not an urgency and a working toward and a fervency to say, I need to make sure I'm thinking about marriage correctly. That I'm seeing this like God would see this. That, that I'm not enculturated. That God's heart towards marriage is evident in the way I think about it and I feel about it. And I'm not saying that reading a book is your answer. I'm just saying it points to in this room that there's probably a, a marginalization and a cheapening and the cultural haze just kind of staying in place. And so maybe we could just say this and maybe even start us out this morning to the men in the room that I think it would be um, a good thing for many of us even right now as we just sit here to repent before God of an inadequate vision for our marriage. An inadequate vision for it. An inadequate hope for it. And so I think if you want to think about the first thing of what it means to live according to knowledge in your marriage, it's that you're developing, you're working hard to develop an appropriate God-honoring view of marriage. This would be the second thing, living according to knowledge. Secondly, as husbands, you need to work to get a biblical view of your role in marriage. So, so not just marriage from a 30,000 foot level, a theology of it, a framework for it, but, but you need to actually work to see what is your role within this covenant of marriage. Okay, so we need to go to Ephesians chapter five real quick. So flip, flip over there. Peter's saying, if you want to live according to knowledge, you've got to know what you're called to be and what you're called to do and what, what sort of a mantle God has given you in the context of your marriage. Okay, now in, in 1 Peter chapter three, verse one, um, Peter tells ladies to, that you need to submit to your own husband. He's commanding it. Just like Paul does in Ephesians 5. It's, it's a text that has a lot of overlap to it. So look in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Paul's going to say something very similar. He, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. He's echoing what, what Peter has said. He's saying that, that wives, there needs to be a joyful willingness in you to follow the leadership that God has placed over you. That there needs to be a joyful willingness for that. In the context of your home. But that's not all he says. Look at verse 23 in in Ephesians 5. Paul's going to go on. Like, why is that? Okay, and kind of the next statement after that. So husbands or wives, submit to your husbands. And now husbands. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. See, I think what happens is when men read verse 22, there is something in them that says, amen to that. I like that submission piece. And if you've got an IQ over 10, that's hopefully done silently for you. But, but here's the thing. Do you see what verse 23 says for you, men? Do you see this? That if, if your woman is called to joyfully and willingly follow your leadership, you know what that means for you? That God is looking at you and he is saying that you need to be a trustworthy leader. That you need to be an appropriate God-honoring head. See, when you read verse 22 and verse 23, if if there's this little silent amen thing going on in you, it's because you are foolish. It's because you can't see clearly what God has called you to be and do. That when you read verse 22 and verse 23, it ought to descend tremors in your soul. When you think about what God is calling you to here, 
But when you think about this mantle that God is putting on you here, you ought to tremble at that. Okay, so what does it mean when he says that that men are the head? What, What does it mean to be the head? Let me give you a definition of this. It'll be on the screen for you. Headship means this. It's the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility to love as Christ loves. It's the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility to love as Christ loves. So let me just break that down into the the different little parts of that. First of all, you've got a divine calling. This is God's call on you if you're a man in the room and married. That God is looking at you and saying, this is your mantle. This is what I've pronounced over you, that you are ahead. Now, um, when we preached through um, Ephesians 5, this has been about a year and a half ago, we spent a lot of time making sure there was an awareness that this is not rooted in culture, but this is rooted in creation. So, so we spent a lot of time looking at Genesis 1 and 2 and about how pre-fall and pre-sin, that, that headship and submission are both embedded into the fabric of creation. That headship and submission are good things and glorious things because they're God's things. Okay, so I'm not going to recount all that. I just want to point your attention to verse 23. When Paul says, um, for the husband is the head of the wife, that's in, he's saying that in an indicative mood. And what that means is he's not making a command. He's not commanding the guys to do something. It's a statement of fact. Paul is just announcing something. It would be like saying that this chair is blue or this stage is black. It's just an announcement. It's a statement of fact that this is what God has done. Okay, so men in the room. See, it's not a matter of are you the head? That's not the question. Like Paul is saying, this is a statement of fact. This is the mantle, this divine calling that God has placed on you. So you are the head. The question is, are you a good head? That's the question. In in your marriage with your wife, the, the question is, are you living in that divine calling? Are you a good head in the context of your home? Are you a good head for the sake of your wife? Are you a good head for the sake of your kids? That's the question. So, so it's this divine calling. Paul's saying it's, it's, it's a statement of fact. This is what God has said about husbands and wife and the roles that he's given them. And he says it's a divine calling to take primary responsibility. To take primary responsibility. So headship isn't a right to rule as much as it is a sobering responsibility to bear. Husbands, listen to this. Listen to what this means for you. Headship. Primary responsibility means this, that for everything that happens in your home, finances, provision, protection, parenting, we could go down the list, everything that happens in your home, everything, God is looking at you and saying, ultimately, that is your responsibility. It is your responsibility. See, this is what leadership means. See, everyone loves the idea of leadership and being that guy until you get that responsibility. See, everyone loves it until there's fault to go around and you're the one that has to say, this is my fault ultimately. See, this is what headship means. It means in the context of your home that you are primarily responsible. Okay, now let let me just kind of build the the case for this and help you see this in Genesis 3 and how this plays out. So if you you want to flip back there, Genesis 3. In Genesis 2, um, we have our first wedding. And so um, God walks his daughter Eve down the aisle and he gives his daughter away to his son, Adam. And then he turns around and he officiates the wedding for them. He pronounces them husband and wife. The two become one flesh. He sets them in a garden and he gives them one command. The command is don't eat of that tree. Then we get to Genesis 3 and we see the marriage is going great. 
until we get to Genesis 3. And, and all of a sudden, in verse 1, we see that the, the, the serpent, Satan, is speaking to Eve, tempting Eve. And, and the, certain de- the serpent deceives Eve, and all of a sudden, she grabs the fruit and she eats it. And I think verse 6 in Genesis 3 is really interesting because it puts this one little descriptive marker right on the end of it where Eve um, eats the fruit and then it says the last little phrase, it says, and her husband was with her. See, Adam is not out of the office while Eve is rebelling. Adam is not on vacation while she grabs the fruit. Adam is, is lurking in the shadows, passively watching his wife rebel. P- passively watching. Okay, now, do you remember kind of coming forward how the story goes? If you get, look it down at verse 9. Um, so in, in kind of following verse 6, um, they realize um, Adam eats the fruit after her, and they realize that they are no longer approved before God, so they make clothes for themselves to try to cover themselves after they realize that they're naked and not approved. And, and then they hide themselves from God. And then in verse 9, you see God coming to pursue. This is just a picture of grace. God coming to pursue Adam and Eve. But do you see what it says in verse 9? When God starts knocking on the, the door of Adam and Eve's home, who does he talk to? Look at what it says. But the Lord God called to who? Not to the woman. Now, now who ate the fruit first? Eve did. But but he doesn't call to the woman, but the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Adam, where are you? See, now, I, I think if you want a description of what I hope God will do today for the men in the room, it's that he would look around, he might bang on the door of your home and ask this question, men, where are you? See, when, when fault happens in the home, when issues arise in the home, let's just take whatever you want to take. God's first question, men, is not to your wives. His first question is not to your kids. His first question is to you. Why? Because you are the head. You are the one that God has put on this divine calling to take primary responsibility. Now let that sober you for a second. First question is to the man. Now, now, wives, I want to make sure, just a quick word to you, that you see that although the man does have primary responsibility, he does not have sole responsibility. So if you look down in verse 16, you're going to see that, that God dealt with Eve's sin, just like he will deal with your sin if you've got it in your marriage. But, but men, I want you to see this. Big picture-wise, this is your divine calling to take primary responsibility, that when God thinks about your home, your marriage, your parenting, your finances, your whatever you want to fill in the blank there, God is looking to you first. God's question is to you first. So it's this divine calling to take primary responsibility to love as Christ loves. And so, men, I want you to be really aware of something in the Bible. that There is no command for you to be ahead in your home. There is no command for you to make your wife submit. You know what the command for you is? Ephesians 5, 25, for you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's your command. Do do you see that? That this is not a call to dictatorship. This is not a call to make your wife do something. This is a call for for boys to become biblical men and take responsibility as they lay down their life for the sake of their wives and their family. That's headship. Okay, now here's the problem with headship and sin, is sin distorts headship. 
It maligns and it mars headship. And typically um, what sin does is it causes us to go in, in two extremes. So, so here's the biblical vision of headship, this divine calling to take primary responsibility to love as Christ loves. And, and yet sin comes in and it pushes men to the extremes. And I'll just describe the two extremes with these two words. One word would be dominance. Th- this is the man who is a bully. This is the man who is a jerk. This is the man who, who really has no good friends in his life because no one can stand him. This is the man who would, who would raise a hand at his wife. This is the man who would raise his voice at his wife. This is the man who would intimidate his wife. This is the man who really thinks that headship equals dictatorship. And it doesn't. That is, if that's where you find yourself today, how dare you think that? How, how dare you? That, that is not the picture of headship in the Bible. Jesus is the picture of headship in the Bible. And, and you don't see Jesus being a dictator. Listen, there has been a sovereign call on your life to be the head, but that does not mean that you are the sovereign in your home. Jesus is. So so you've got one side that that, that sin will push men towards dominance, but then you've got this other side where sin will push men towards indifference, towards apathy, towards being just just being lackadaisical with this divine calling that God has placed on their life. See, these guys are good guys. They're they're typically nice guys. They're the guys that will come in and out of church on a weekly basis. They'll stomach sermons. So they're sitting here even today and and they're listening to it, but they've got no intention of changing. They they have this admiration of God. Like, yeah, he's a good thing. I, I like him. I'm all in, but I don't follow God. I mean, this is the person that comes with the Bible in hand that they don't know that comes with a family in tow that they're not discipling. This is that guy. This is the guy that everybody sort of likes, but nobody takes overly serious. And, uh, and, and the ironic thing is uh, in almost every church I've ever been a part of, this has been the dominant man in the church. This is what fills churches up. And I think part of this is the church's fault because here's what churches have done. Churches have affirmed that boys are men. And, and listen, boys are not men. They're not. Like this is how the journey towards manhood goes. You start as a male. You don't have to earn that. You don't do anything for that. All you are is born and you get a birth certificate that says it. So you start off as a male, and then as God grows you, you become a boy. But boys are not men. See, just ask the 17-year-old who's sleeping around with a girl, who, who's taking all of her but refuses to take responsibility for her soul. Ask the 45-year-old boy who's married and has a mistress on the side. That's a boy that's just in a 45-year-old body. That's all that is. And if he doesn't like get it together soon, if God doesn't start to break some of this off, then he's going to destroy his family. See, boys are not men. Men are, are, are boys that God has developed and the grace of God has started to move in where they're actually taking responsibility for their own lives first. And then they look around at the load that other people are carrying and they start taking responsibility for that. that that's what a biblical man is. And so I want to be real careful not to affirm for the guys in here that, that you're a man when chances are that you're a boy. So you know that you're a man when you have started to take responsibility for your life and those around you. So this is the call to headship. This is the divine calling that God has placed on you to take primary responsibility. 
to love as, as Jesus has loved you, to pursue as Jesus has pursued you, to initiate like Jesus has, has initiated with you. That, that's headship. That this is your role within marriage. And Peter is saying, listen, if you don't see that, if you don't get that, if, if you're not working to grow in this awareness that this is God's calling on you, that, that we've got a big problem here. You're not living according to knowledge. There's, there's one more here back in 1 Peter. So he's saying, if you want to live according to knowledge, here's what that means. You need to grow. You need to work to develop a biblical framework for marriage. You, you need to grow to see your, your role within marriage. And maybe we could throw this last one in here. Husbands, you need to work to get to know your wife. You've got to work to actually get to know your wife. See, your wife is uniquely designed by God. So let me just flesh this out for you. That means that you have to like get an A plus in the class of learning who your wife is uniquely designed by God. An A plus, not a B, not a C, not a D, an A plus. That you actually have to pursue your wife. Men, can I just remind you that your wife has a soul and you've actually got to pursue that. You've actually got to learn that. You've actually got to see this unique design. You've actually got to, to press into her. If you want to see what her ministry passions are, what her hopes in life are, what her fears in life are, if you're going to know what pleases her outside of the bedroom, inside of the bedroom, if you're going to know what her, what her vision for, for her future is, if you're going to know those things, it means that you've got to work for that. If, if you're going to know what pleases her, what brings honor, you, you've got to work at that. You've got to pursue that. You've got to press into that. And so I think Peter is saying, listen, if you're going to live according to knowledge, that means that you actually have to become great friends with your wife. And see, the opposite of being a great friend with your wife is being apathetic toward her, being indifferent, coming home disengaging, coming home vegging in front of the TV. When when you get home, your your real job, man, is just started. Welcome to, to the responsibility that God has placed on a man's shoulders. So Peter, first of all, says, instruction one, that you have to live according to knowledge. You, you, have to, you, have to be, you have to learn these things. You have to know these things. But he's got something else for instruction for us. Look back at verse 7. He says this, 1 Peter 3, chapter, or verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And then he says this, second piece of instruction. Showing honor to the wives as the weaker vessel. So I think this would, would be the, the next part of this. He's saying, husbands, you need to show honor to your wives. You need to honor your wives. And listen, this covers, this covers so much territory that we could be here forever trying to unpack it all. So let me just put it in seven general ideas on how you go about honoring your wife, like what it means to show her honor. So, so let me give you seven different categories for that. First of all, number one, that would mean to honor her maritally, to honor her maritally. That, that, that means you're faithful to her. You're faithful to your marriage. Guys, that means that you're not the flirt guy. Th- do you hear that, guys? That you're not the flirt guy. You're, you're not that guy. That, that is dishonoring to your, hus- or to your wife. Th- do you hear that? That is showing dishonor to her. That means that you're not the female buddies guy. That your best five friends are... Fe- it, 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 that, it means you've got one best friend. That's your wife. It means you're not flirting with five different ladies. If you want to flirt with one, you've got a wife. Flirt with her. So this is what it means to show honor to your wife. 
It means that you're not the download pornography guy. It means that you're not the wondering eyes guy. It means you're the guy that is faithful to the pledge and the promise that you have given her. It means you're the guy that has said, my body is yours. It means you're the guy that says, my mind is yours. That I pledge all of these things to you. I take full responsibility of all of these things as I leverage them for you. So if you want to show honor to your wife, it means that you show honor to her maritally. Let me give you another one. It means that you show honor to her physically. And I think this is the gist of some of what Paul say, or Peter is saying here when he says that the, the wife is the weaker vessel. That is not a degrading thing or a demeaning thing. That doesn't mean that, that the woman is intellectually inferior. It doesn't mean any of that. It's just Peter's making a general statement that if you as a husband and your wife get into a fist fight, chances are you're going to win if you're the husband. General statement. That's, that's what he's talking about. He's saying this, that, that as a husband, this is what honoring her physically means, that you would leverage your strength for her. That means if a guy breaks into your house tonight, you don't send your wife out with a baseball bat <laughs> as you crawl under the bed and intercede for her. It means that the, listen to this guys, it means the only way your wife would ever get hurt is if they have killed you first. That, that your strength is hers. That's what it means to honor her physically. And I think we need to just stop here and address this because it's rampant in our, just our culture, domestic violence. That, that a man would take the strength that God has given him in, in order to protect th- this daughter of God and actually use that in the context of marriage to abuse her, to raise a hand toward her. How dare you if you're a guy in here and that's you? How dare you do that? That you would take what God has given you to protect her and use that to abuse her. That is dishonoring her. It's dishonoring to God. And I think God would look at you with special words and say, that has got to stop. And if you're a lady in the room and you're married into that, you need to let people know that. You do not live behind that curtain. That, that needs to be out in the open. And if you're a single woman in the room and, and your boyfriend ever raises a hand against you, even threatens that. Can I just give you this advice? You need to run. For the sake of your kids, you better run. For the sake of your grandkids, you better run. I don't care how much he cries in front of you, how much he begs for forgiveness, how much he apologizes. You need to run. So, so part of honoring your wife is to honor her physically. Thirdly, part of honoring your wife means to honor her verbally. I think some of the men in the room would say, I have never hit my wife. And I would um, respectfully look back at you and say, I think you probably have. That you have packaged up your words and you've pressed them into the form of a hammer and you have used those words to break your wives into pieces. So this isn't just a physical thing, it's a verbal thing. Your words can crush your wife. Do you know that, men? It can crush them. You, you start to use um, sarcasm as a way to, to mask demeaning things toward her. Listen, that will crush her. You speak ill of her, that will crush her. And listen, this is not just a thing where it's, where it's in her presence. This is in her absence. Can I just remind you that there is no place that you're ever going to be absent of God? That he hears all of that? 
So when you're with your friends, when you're with your co-workers, when you're on the golf course with your buddies, how you speak about your wife is in the presence of God. And I don't care what your wife does to you, what she says to you, honoring your wife means that you speak respectfully to her. That Ephesians 4, that your words are full of grace toward her. See, part of honoring your wife means that you honor her verbally. Number four, means that you honor her financially. Genesis 30, um, I, I think it's clear when it's talking about the curse, um, as God addresses the sin of Eve and addresses the sin of, of Adam, where he looks at Eve and he says, this is how it's going to go bad for you. This is, this is your curse. Child rearing is going to be really difficult. If you're a man, you've ever been in the delivery room, we would amen that many times over. That looks really hard to me. That looks painful to me. That looks like something I do not want to experience. So, so God is clear. This, this is part of your curse. It's going to center around the family. It's going to be this, this difficulty in childrearing, but it's also going to be that you're going to have a really hard time in your joyful willingness to follow the one that God has placed in authority over you. So, so I think God is clear to the lady. And I think God is clear to the guy. He looks at the guy and he says, okay, now here, here's your job. As you work and as you cultivate and as you try to provide, there's going to be thorns and thistles in that that are going to make it very difficult for you to provide for your family. And this is your part of the curse. And, and here's what I think a lot of guys have done in our culture. If they, they look at their wife and they recognize that they've got a pretty big load over there. And they look at their own load and realize, man, I've got a big load of, of provision for our family. And, and so what guys do is they, they cut their load in half and they say, well, I'll carry half my load and then I'll take the other half and I'll stack it on the back of my wife so she can carry not only her part of the curse, but half of mine. See, part of what Genesis 3 is saying in the curse to the guy is, is men, you have to work harder than every other men. You, you've got to work hard to push back the thorns and the thistles for you to be able to provide for your family. That's going to be hard work for you. And listen, if you're hearing me this morning and, and you're hearing me saying a, a woman cannot work, that's not, you're misconstruing words from me. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I think I, I will raise this question, does she have to? Does she have to? And if over the, pan, and I, maybe for a season, yes, but if over the panoramic picture, you're saying yes to that, I think there's a great chance that you're dividing your load in half. And rather than saying, I'll take mine and part of hers, you're saying, why don't you take yours and part of mine? And, and man, I want to free you just from this excessive burden that God has not called you to, to make sure your family lives in the nicest house and drives the nicest cars. That is not God's call on your life. This call of provision, honoring your wife financially, it means that you are an extremely hard worker as you push back thorns and thistles in your provision for what is necessary for your family. So you honor her financially. Here's another one, number five. You honor her emotionally. And man, I think it's, it's worth dispelling the myth here that many men live with. That as long as I get a paycheck and honor her financially, then my responsibility is done. Men, that is where your responsibility starts. That's where it starts. That's the, that's the beginning point. It's not just, I, I bring home the bread and so now I can disengage and push back and my, my, my job is done. That, that is not how biblical manhood works. Biblical manhood says, I, I'm going to work hard, I'm going to provide, and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to serve and I'm going to press and I'm going to get to know my wife on the deepest level. I'm going to serve her emotionally. That means that you are 
an incredibly great friend to your wife, that you know the deepest levels of her heart. Okay, now I I heard a guy um, give this analogy, and I think it's really helpful that there's three postures within a marriage. Three postures. Here's one posture that some couples have. We'll call it back to back where it's two people living in the same house, but they are living two totally separate lives. They're back to back. Um, There's another posture within marriage that is shoulder to shoulder. And there is a sense in which marriage is a small business that God has entrusted to you. And so in that small business, there's a budget that God's entrusted to you. There's planning that God has told you to do. There's all these tasks that go along with this small family business that God has given you. This task to plan, this task to prepare, this task to raise kids, this this task to to pay bill, all of those things. So, So there's a sense in which we live shoulder to shoulder, where we're doing things together. We're accomplishing things together. And then there's this other posture where we'd say we're face-to-face, where we are at, we're not just doing things together, but we're getting to know one another, where there's intimacy involved, there's friendship involved. Well, I, I like one pastor's definition of intimacy. It's in, to, me, you, see. That, that's intimacy. When, when a person knows the deepest parts of your soul. And men, listen, this is a responsibility that you have is to pursue your wife, to press into your wife, to know your wife on the deepest level. Now, men, let this sober you. See, as a general rule, men are are wired to go shoulder to shoulder. Let's do stuff together. How we build friendship a lot of times is doing things shoulder to shoulder. But your wife probably is is not wired the same way. Your wife is primarily geared to be face to face. And men, sobering. If you stay long enough shoulder to shoulder without spending time face to face, if you do this long enough, it's a matter of time before you're back to back. See, the reason a lot of us, maybe even this morning, find ourselves back to back in our marriages is because we have lived shoulder to shoulder so long enough. And men, we have never taken the initiative. We've never stepped into pressing in and actually getting to know our wife face to face. Not just how's the day going, but how are you doing? How are you? Men, your wife has a soul. She's got a soul for you to cultivate, for you to get to know. See, this is what it means to honor her emotionally, is that you're living there, that there's not a disengagement when you get home, that there's a recognition that when I get home, my primary job has started to honor her emotionally. Number six, a couple more and we're, we're almost done. Number six is to honor her parentally. Okay, now I think this goes in two directions um, for, for the men in the room. Number one, it goes in this direction. That you are called by God to prioritize your love for your wife above your love for your kids. Now that's worded carefully. I'm not saying that God is saying you need to love your husband, love your wife more than your kids. I'm saying this, that God has called you to prioritize that love of your wife, of your husband, above your kids. See, if if you get this out of whack, if kids become the central thing in your house, can I just clue you into something? In 18 years, they're gone. And your wife is still going to be in that bed with you. And if if kids have kind of become that, that centerpiece that's trying to hold your marriage together, when they go, guess what happens? You wake up and you realize you don't know the woman sitting beside you in that bed. So, so men, 
This is a call by you to make sure that the like spousal love in the home is prioritized. The, and, and ladies, you need to hear that too. The greatest thing you can do for your kids is have an outstanding marriage. The best benefit you can give your kids is prioritizing a love for your spouse above them. They, they need that from you. That's a good thing for them to see in you. So, so first it means we're prioritizing the, the loves in the right order. But secondly, men, that means that you are involved in home. That when you come home, you are not disengaged. When you come home, you are playing your part in raising your kids to know Jesus. So men, that means that if you've got daughters, you need to take your daughters out on dates. If you've got boys, that means you need to figure out ways to get in their world. You need to have guy, dad time. That that needs to happen in your home. There needs to be this active involvement in how you would pastor and how you would um, be involved in the parental kind of aspect of your family. And and I just want to tell you that this is one of the concerns I have and just in how our culture, I think, views manhood in general is that, that, that what we elevate as um, noble and good in our culture is boys that are business savvy. What we elevate is um, the, the boy who can now, uh, he, he's now a scratch golfer because he spent so much time on the golf course. What we elevate is the guy that um, has, has literally bagged every species of animal in North America on their hunting trips. And all the while they have sacrificed their family to do it. And that is not honoring to God. It's not honoring to your wife. It's sinful. It's sinful. See, what, what the Bible holds up as honorable is the man who would lay down his life, who would bleed, who would die for his family. That, that's what the Bible would hold down as honorable. And, and maybe we just need a recalibration to when you stand before Jesus, do you really think saying, I'm a scratch golfer is going to matter? Do you really think your hunting exploits are going to matter? I don't think they're going to. I think we need a recalibration of what's really important. That that our priority should be Christian, husband, daddy, employee. And you know what that means when our priorities are those four things? It means there's a ton of other things in our life that have to be set on the back burner. It means that there is a ton of things that we would enjoy doing that we say no to because they're not this important. It's honoring your wife parentally. And number seven, I think there's a call in here and this call to honor your wife, to honor her spiritually. And I think this is a foundational one that men, um, I, I want you to hear what you're supposed to be in the family. That when your family thinks about you as husband, they think about you as daddy, that they think that is not just daddy, that is pastor dad. And when your wife thinks of you, that she thinks that is not just my husband, that is a pastor who is my husband. That is a shepherd who is my husband. Now, now men, let me ask you the question. Would that, would that be weird to, for your wife to think of you that way? For your kids to think of you that way? See, maybe this imagery would help you. If you could imagine, uh, I died, and somehow tomorrow they made you the pastor of Stonegate. And all of a sudden you start to ask questions like, um, well, I wonder what I need to be teaching to, to, to actually feed the people here. Like, I wonder what they need to know, what, what we need to work through, what I need to make sure that they're aware of, what gospel ray I need to make sure that they've got in view. 
And then you might ask questions like, um, I, I wonder where we're deficient. And, and over the next year, that we need to be investing into this person specifically. And, and maybe over the next three years, five years, where does our church need to be? Now, now take those questions and lay those over your family. And that, that starts to walk you in a, to what pastoring means in the context of your family. That you're actually thinking about, God has given me a responsibility to make sure my wife knows the gospel. God has given me this responsibility to make sure my, my kids know the gospel. And so I probably ought to be thinking about, well, what do they not know that they need to know? What, what nuance of the gospel do I need to make sure is clarified this year? When we think three years, five years out, where do we as a family need to be? See, this is what it means to pastor your family. It means that you are the spiritual pace setters in your family. That does not mean that you have to, to know the most. It doesn't mean that you have to know the most theology in your family, but it means that you are the one that has to set the pace for the love of God and the hatred of sin. It means that, that you as a dad need to get really comfortable with praying over your kids, with reading the Bibles to your kids. It means you need to get real comfortable with talking about Jesus with your kids. That, that's pastoring in your family. That, that's being pastor dad, pastor husband. So th this is how you show honor to, to your wife, is by honoring her spiritually. And so guys, I, I want to just say something to you from the wife's perspective in here. I, I think if I could probably give you the deepest ache in your wife's soul as it relates to you and your marriage, I'm going to express that. If she's a Christian, I'm going to express that for her. That you would be this sort of a man in your home. You'd read your Bible to the family. You'd disciple kids. You'd disciple her in your family. That you would be a pace setter in your love of God and your hatred of sin. That you'd pray over your family. Can I just tell you that's the deepest ache of your wife's soul? And if you want to step into honoring her, that means you step into that divine calling. So, so this is the instruction. It's, it's honor your wife's. It's, it's live according to knowledge. And then he gives two motivational pieces and we'll, we'll finish it up here. He gives two motivational things that, that um, hopefully when a guy hears this, it starts, to ex it starts to set a man's heart on fire for these things. It, and this is what he says. You see it in the, kind of the third phrase in verse seven. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Here, here's motive number one. That your wife, that, that she, she is an heir of grace with you. Do you know that, men? I think this is what Peter's saying there. That, that your wife is a daughter of God. That, that your wife is deeply loved by God. That when, when God thinks about your wife, your wife is precious to God. Your wife is priceless to God. I think Paul is saying that, that in light of that, you, you can't neglect that. You can't be indifferent to that. You can't be apathetic toward that. that. That is a daughter of God, deeply loved by God. See, there's one sense in, in this passage which, which Paul is saying, okay, she's the weaker vessel. There is a difference in roles here. But there's another sense in which God would look at you the same. That just like you're deeply loved, she's deeply loved. Just like God cares for her, he cares for you. And as a husband in the home, you need to care for God's daughter like he does. That she's an heir of, of grace with you. And then there's a second piece of motivation in here. He says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. This is, this is pretty sobering, isn't it? 
that to think about um, being unattentive and neglectful of your wife actually hinders your prayers before God? So I think there's a sense in which God in this passage through Peter is saying, do you realize that when you dishonor your wife, that you have set yourself up at odds with me? Do you realize that when you're neglectful of your wife, you have set yourself up um, where there's about to be a reckoning between you and I? Do you realize that when you're unattentive to your wife, that the posture of your heart is defiance toward me? Do you realize that? So it's impossible for me to answer your prayers in the midst of that. If I answered them, they'd kill you. The last thing you need for me to, to do is answer your prayers. What, what you really, maybe you could think of it this way. I think that there's a sense in this passage with this is playing out, this dynamic. If you could picture uh, maybe your father in the room, your son is addicted to crack cocaine. And all of a sudden he comes to you and says, hey dad, will you give me a hundred dollars so I can, uh, I can go buy some more crack? The last thing you would do is give him $100 because the last thing he needs is $100 to go buy more crack. And I think there's the same sense that God would be saying, how can I answer your prayers for more strength when all you would do is use that strength to malign and, and misrepresent and neglect my daughter? Why would I do that? The last thing you need is that. What you need from me is violent grace. What you need from me is for me to come and break down all of your rebellion, all this callousness in you. All of this indifference. Like Jonah, what you need is for me to come after you and crush you with a storm. That's what you need. And so I think that there's a sense um, for, for those of us in the room that have been unattentive and neglectful. I think there's a sense in which God would say this to, to you, to me. It's just a matter of how much pain do you want here? Because I'm going to come for you in tender grace, but it's going to be violent. And I'm gonna, I'll do whatever it takes to break you of this indifference. I'll do whatever it takes to break you of this lack of attention for what I would call precious. So, so it's really, how much pain do you want? What do you want me to have to do to break you of this? That, that, that's the question. And then I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, that I, I want you to hear this loud and clear this morning. That this ambition to live as a pastor in your family, to live in, in, in being ahead, in this divine calling to take primary responsibility to love as Christ loves, it is a gospel-dependent ambition. Do you know that? It is a gospel-dependent ambition. Even in Genesis um, 3, I think it's so interesting when you see the indifference of Adam, you, you see how sin has already distorted headship. Some to dominance, Adam to indifference. You, you see, even in Genesis 3, God speaking in what is ultimately the hope of that indifference and that dominance. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I'm going to send one, a seed of a woman. I'm going to send her, him. And, and um, Satan, you're going to bruise his heel, but ultimately he is going to, on the cross, Jesus, crush your head. And there's going to be a sense in which the, the, all the things that have happened in the, in the fall, this curse that has happened, that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that I'm actually going to start reversing the curse. That I'm actually going to enable a man not to live in this dominant posture, not to live in this indifference, but actually to live in this divine calling to take primary responsibility, to live as a head, to live as a pastor. I'm actually going to enable that. See, man, I think that there's this tendency and this temptation for you today to think, okay, so what I need to do is I just need to make another like resolution. What, what I need to do is just muster up a, some willpower. 
But what I need to do is just tomorrow grip my teeth and do what, what I need to do. And listen, I'm not trying to discount that. But what I'm saying, ultimately, what you need more than willpower is you need the gospel to explode in your heart. That's what you need. You need for grace to bring your heart alive to where it's not just I have to do this, but I want to do this. This is how God has loved me. And what, what bigger privilege for me to look at my wife, this daughter of God that he's entrusted to me, and for me to give my life away as I pursue her, initiate with her, as I love her. See, that's what you need. See, you, you living in this is not dependent upon your willpower, but on the gospel exploding in you. And may it be for you. My hope for the men in the room is that God would take us from boyhood to manhood, that we would look across this room and see countless pastors in the context of their family. Amen? Let's pray. Sometimes when I think about the role of a a lady in marriage, I can totally relate to um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse um, 5 and 6, where it, it says that, or where Peter is essentially encouraging them not to be frightened. Because when I think about God's call on some of our ladies to submit, especially when she has married a boy, I can't think of anything more terrifying than that. And so, men, I just, I want to plead with you. I want to beg you. I want to, I want to be... I want to just be this voice of God into your heart this morning that would say, honor your wife. That would say, live with her in an understanding way. A biblical view of marriage. A a, a reality, like this acknowledgement of what your role in marriage is. That you would pursue her. And men, I I think there probably needs to be a lot of confession to your wives this morning. There probably needs to be some some real authentic repentance where you get on your face before God and you plead that the grace of God over these things. And so we want to give you some space for that. And so we're going to end with communion. And I think this this serves as as a great reminder and a great way to finish for us today. Because I think it's going to say two things to every guy in this room. First thing it's going to say is this. When when you get the bread and you dip it in the juice, you are saying that the body of Jesus was broken for you and the blood of Jesus was spilled for you. And that body and that blood covers every failure you've had in marriage. Do you know that this morning? Can you just let that wash over you if you're a man in the room? all your past failures, all your present failures, and all your future failures paid for. The grace of God has covered them. But it's also going to say this to you, that that same grace that covers your sin is the same grace that motivates you and pushes you and enables in you obedience to God. That that same grace, that same body that you're going to dip in, that same bre- this bread and the juice, that, that same, same body, same blood that covers your sin says this morning that if you will get in me and me in you, I, I will enable this in you. I will energize and empower this in you where you can actually live in this. You can actually do this. You can actually become this.
And so I pray that that grace would hit you there. So, so God, I, um, I pray for our men. God, I pray that they would become godly pastors, that they would live in this divine calling of headship. So God, by your grace, will you gift us with repentance? God, will, will you bring the weight of sin and indifference down on this room? God, will you gift us with that? And God, by your grace, will you motivate and will you move the men in this room toward this divine calling? Will you call them out of sin? God, will you move them into righteousness? Will you move them into obedience today? God, I pray that by your grace that we would see these things happen. It's in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to give you a second. There's tables up front. Um, If you've been here before, you dip the bread in the juice and take communion all there. There's one table in the back. And so we want to give you some time. Maybe maybe you need to pray with your husband, your husband over your wife. Uh, Maybe there needs to be some confession. Um, But we'd encourage you to do business with God. And then when you're ready, you can get up and... uh, and take communion with it with us. And if you're not a Christian in the room, here's what we would encourage you to do this morning. Rather than taking communion, we want you to take Jesus. We, we want you to respond to him in faith, bowing to him, submitting your life to him and saying, God, will you save me? And if that's your heart this morning, if that's where you are, we'd love to chat with you and we'd invite you to take communion with us. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.